2: The second pick in the 2021 NFL draft. The New York Jets select Zach Wilson, quarterback, BYU.
3: Jets fans, today is a sad day, like the last three days have been, because Zach Wilson stunk on Sunday. What we thought was going to be a game to build on, we looked somewhat impressive in the first half against the Philadelphia Eagles, came to a crashing, crashing halt. Another season is over. Another season where we're looking towards the drafts before Christmas. And Jets fans, I don't know how else to say this, but we probably will not know if Zach Wilson is a franchise quarterback by the end of this year. And we're going to have to spend the next eight months relying on hope, Copium in our draft priors, believing that he is one. Uh, James, as Kyle Shanahan says, um, I don't know if we're going to be here on Sunday. Last Sunday, I didn't want to be there on that Sunday. So how are you?
4: I'm doing good, Megs. How are you?
3: Yeah, pretty shitty. Uh, Joe, how are you?
2: <laughs> Megs, man, I don't like to see you like this. We got to, like, build you up. You know, we were talking some prospects this week and – you know, cheer you up. We can look towards the future and maybe you can feel a little bit better about Zach, but definitely don't like seeing you like this, my man. Like, uh, let's uh, let's get this thing going. Dylan?
0: I feel like you'll perk up a little bit once we talk about Chris Olave, because Lord knows he is your favorite prospect, maybe in the entire draft. But, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily in his like disaster mode as you guys right now. I'm upset, but, you know, it's it's whatever, you know, maybe he can be resurrected. Maybe we should just make Mike LaFleur the head coach, who knows, you know, let's think, I'm trying to think of the craziest things that people are going to say on Twitter this off season, but yeah, I mean, I'm not in panic mode yet. I think that it, it sucks. And it is concerning, as we just said before, that we have another quarterback who has, has all the tools. We can't put it all together, but you know, I'm not in disaster mode just yet. The panic button's
3: not being pushed on my end. we to talk about uh, Chris Olave's quarterback, CJ Stroud, if he were draft eligible, but um, no, I kid, I kid. Zach Wilson could still be good. It's not all doom and gloom, but we do have some prospects we want to talk about today. And there's been a lot of debates in the Twitter streets about what, what assets we should use for certain positions. And I know my guy, Joe is going to finally put it to bed, all the offensive line discourse today. So I'm excited for that. But a certain member of this podcast last year was one of the first ones Uh on the artist woman known as Jason Owe, known as Adafe Owe, my guy, James Coots. And there was another guy on this podcast who said no way to Owe back in the day. And James Coots seems to have found his next Owe. So James, take it away.
4: Yeah, so it's actually kind of crazy that you you introed it this way because I will get to that in a sec. But yeah, the prospect I'm talking about is Trevon Walker. He is the defensive lineman from Georgia. He's a true junior and he's six foot five, 275 pounds. So Trevon is probably the hardest evaluation I've done so far this season and maybe the toughest overall. And I want to compare him to Odafe Owe from Penn State with the Ravens, not as a one-to-one stylistic comparison, but just because I think there's some useful aspects of contrasting how they are both viewed as prospects. So in terms of their weight, they're very different. But in terms of the defensive scheme hindering their ability to showcase their talents, I think that OA and Walker are very similar. Walker is really pretty much used in a four-eye technique, which means inside shoulder of the tackle, where he's basically eating up double teams in the run game. And then on passing downs, they're using him to basically set picks for other players to go around him so that they can get free for sacks. So he's basically doing all the dirty work here. So that's not a deployment that would naturally lend itself to showcasing your natural ability. But what I will say is just like OA, in the very few true pass rush opportunities that Walker has, he is impressive. Trevon showcases this is probably the most important sentence of, of my, you know, kind of my write-up is that. Trevon showcases a very good first step in general, but for his size, his first step explosiveness is rare. Even coming out of this like whack-looking four-point stance, he's the first off the ball and almost touching the offensive lineman before they even get out of their stance. And that was truly impressive for me. Um, He also has good power to work into the chest of tackles, which I thought was pretty impressive too. The other thing with Trevon is, He is really mobile for his size. I mean, I was sharing this in the Slack earlier, but I fully expect him to run around a 4-6-0 40-yard dash at 275 pounds. I mean, his mobility is really impressive. And there was this one play against Arkansas where he's left unblocked on a run play, senses it's an RPO based on the quarterback's eyes, drops into coverage, and covers up a slant route being run by the slot receiver. I mean, he did that like a a good linebacker would. And this guy's a defensive lineman at 275 pounds. So not only is the athleticism there, there's the coverage instincts too. Now, in terms of deployment in the NFL, I like Trevon as either a 4-3 defensive end or a 3-4 outside linebacker. But I really would love to see him go to a a defense that's kind of less gimmicky than what Georgia is. I know Georgia has this vaunted defense, but – I would love to see him get more natural pass rush opportunities where he's not stunting. Um, In terms of valuation, um, it's kind of all over the place on draft Twitter. I know Dane Brugler, who's one of the most respected people, thinks that he's a top 15 player. Um, Personally, I think like OA, Trevon Walker is a late first round player. Um, He's going to be portrayed as a risky pick, but I think if you use him in the right way, which in my opinion is as a edge rusher i think he can be a double digit sack player in the nfl and i mean i i really like this player
3: yeah james i'm gonna bring dylan in because he also had a certain edge rusher and i have a question for both of you uh once dylan gets done but dylan uh hutchinson has got all the plaudits He's got all the hub up. He's the only person Joe Bell thinks of at night, but he's got quite, quite the partner uh, on his defensive line, who's definitely wrecks enough havoc in his own rights. So please take it away.
0: So in the least weird way possible, Joe, I know you go to bed thinking about Aiden Hutchinson at night, but when I go to bed, I'm thinking about David Ojabo. Didn't mean it that way. It's not meant to be weird. He's a hell of an athlete and I'm going to present Scotland's finest to the table tonight. So from Aberdeen, Scotland, he is an absolute freak athlete, which I feel like I need to counter at this point how many times I say that on this pod. But he didn't start playing football until his junior year of high school. He played soccer. He played basketball. He was a track star. Actually ran a 10 9 meter dash. An absurd freak of an athlete. And he didn't start playing. Then he starts playing and immediately... Wrecks havoc, 35 tackles, six sacks. His freshman or his first year playing in high school football drew a ton of attention with his testing. Ran a 475 40 at 6'5 230 at the time. He's bulked up, he's had 20 pounds since he's 6'5 250 now. He goes to Michigan, played in one game last year and had one tackle. Played most of his snaps on special teams, did not get a ton of reps, and then this season gets a new defensive coordinator. Has the running mate of all running mates, Naden Hutchinson, and puts up 11 sacks to this point, five force fumbles, set a Michigan school record, and has gone up draft boards to the point he's being talked about as possible top 15 picks in some circles. So what what happened in that time span, and who is David Ojabo? So when I see David Ojabo, I think of somebody who reminds me actually of this kind of O.A. Walker type that we're talking about, an athletic freak who, you know, put it all together. Here's the difference with me, where originally, if you would have asked me to watch David Ojabo at the start of the season, the first couple of games, I would have seen O.A. Now I'm seeing a guy who's become a proven producer, become a disruptor. And I talk about a disruptor because this is a guy who is a strip sack artist. Five force fumbles is insane. But even if you watched him against Penn State, and I had a first-hand opportunity to, I came away more impressed with Ojabo in that game than Hutchinson. Now, that's not to say Hutchinson's not a better player, because I do believe he's a wildly better player. He's more technical. He can do more. But Ojabo just constantly flies off the edge. He has an insanely high motor. He does not stop until the play is finished. He has incredible burst, incredible closing ability. He's just a freak athlete. But therein kind of lies the problem with me, with David Ojaba. As much as I like the guy, his hand, he uses his hands effectively, but he does not use them efficiently. His football IQ is not where it needs to be at this point. And obviously that kind of stems from the fact that he has only been playing football for a couple years. He's relatively new, but I think that there's definitely a lot of raw ability with him. And I think his past rushing skills are obviously in. It can be insane. He has the mold to be a really, really good pass rusher. His rush defense could stand to improve. He didn't have all that time cutting his teeth like Hutchinson did in the Don Brown scheme, just rushing, uh, really just only playing on rush defense. But my problem with David Ojabo for the New York Jets is that you look at kind of the past draft picks for Joe Douglas. And even if you want to go back to past draft picks under Mike McKagan and New York Jets picks, who are these athletes that are supposed to put it all together. And I think of, you know, a couple picks that, have been by Joe Douglas. I think of Jabari Zuniga. I think of Ashton Davis, somebody we've talked about a lot. And I will even throw Zach Wilson in the category of these guys who have all the tools, but need to put it all together. I'm kind of at the point where how much trust do I have in the New York Jets to can competently bring a player to what their full potential is. And obviously this is a much larger question, but do I believe that David Ojabo can be brought to everything he can be in this In this team and this organization, I don't entirely know, especially in if you bring me a raw linebacker, you bring me a raw edge rusher. I do believe Robert Sala can work some magic. I just don't know if David Ojaba would be the best fit for the New York Jets right now. I also do believe that although the idea of him and Carl Lawson being great running mates sounds alluring. I just don't know if David Ojabo would be the best fit for the New York Jets because I would rather us go with Proven rather than these raw athletes because who knows how he is going to translate to the next level because you have the OAs, but you also have the guys who flame out and don't transition as well as you'd like. So I'm kind of in the middle here on Ojabo. I'd like to hear some of your guys' opinions on it. I love the guy, but I don't know if I love the fit.
3: Yeah, Dylan, um, I do like Ojabo. I think there's a lot of rumors about him possibly going back to school to fully refine those talents and also just prove that he isn't eating off the fact that Aiden Hutchinson's obviously going to draw a lot of attention. Uh, obviously going to draw the tougher matchup. But um, my question for you and James, and also uh, I w- I'm curious to hear Joe's thoughts on this, is that uh, Hutchinson and KVN have been seen as the consensus two best players in this draft think probably going to go one, two, really tier one edge rushers. And Purdue's George Karloftis has been that edge three, still probably going to be a top 10 pick. My question to both of you guys is the edge rusher you brought to the table, do you see their skill sets as possibly a higher ceiling than Karloftis and possibly someone you could see ranking over Karloftis once this draft process is completed? So Dylan, I'll start with you. I think this is a guy
0: who has the ceiling to be an incredible head rusher. I think he has the ceiling to be in that category with Carl so those game wreckers that can kind of do a lot of things, but I just don't, I actually think him going back to school, the only problem is that he'd be 23 coming out next year. And I know you're a big age guy there, Meeks, And, you know, that he's going to draw some red flags from teams about the age. But at the same time, I think that it wouldn't be the worst idea for him to go back. But I do think his draft value is high right now. And I do think he has the potential, if he lands in the right spot, to possibly have a better career than Carl Aftis. And I'm not necessarily going to say a better career than Hutchinson or Tuto, but I don't know. I think he has the raw raw potential to be a superb athlete or superb rusher,
3: James, you've had, you've had some takes about uh, Carl in our Slack chat. So I think I know your brain's at, but uh, let's hear it. Yeah. I mean,
4: I actually, from what I know about Ojabo, I think Ojabo would have a better chance of challenging George Carl than Trevon Walker, just because I think Ojabo, it's a little bit more clear cut that he's going to play three, four outside linebacker. And whereas Trevon Walker, I think there's going to be some teams that want him as a, you know, hand-in-the-dirt 3-4 defensive end, other teams that want him as a 4-3 defensive end and that sort of compression-style rush, and then other teams that want him as a 3-4 outside linebacker. So I think because Ojaba's more clear-cut in that way, I think he has a better chance of going
3: higher. Joe, uh, with the three edge rushers that we've talked about, I know obviously they can't compare to Aiden, but in this Tier 2 edge group, how do you see it shaking out? I am higher on Karloftis over those other two prospects. I think Karloftis
2: is a better fit for this base defense when they're in this four, three base. I think that he fits a solid defense better than the other two. I think that he's interchangeable between the weak side and the strong side. And I think when it comes to that and targeting a player for the jets, he is definitely the person that I would target over the others. Like James said, I feel like Walker maybe is a little bit more of a three, four outside linebacker. I think Ajabu is like a really good weak side kind of a, Edge guy, maybe not so much on the strong side. I feel like maybe he's more of this pass rushing specialist, somebody who could potentially come in and play that kind of D forward role in the salad defense. So if I have to choose between those three, I'm, I'm firmly in the Karloftis camp right now.
3: Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, with Hutchinson and Karloftis, like the Bosa and the Watt comps, I think are just kind of lazy because they're white, and you want to get the get, you want to give them their flowers and put them to the good whites. Pro- White pass rushers, because if you call them Trey Hendrickson, it sounds like an insult. But I really think they're really, really good players in the right And I really do like Carl Loftus and what he can do and also just his versatility about a guy you can really move inside and outside and just really wreck games. Because I'm like really concerned I'm concerned about the Jets run defense and is it that their linebackers are just so bad that no defensive line could really stop them. Or does this solid scheme really sacrifice a lot of run defense to get after the quarterback? And I think a player like Karloftis and also a player like Walker can really show out that versatility where you don't have to sacrifice the juice in the pass rush game to actually stop the run because you're not helping your young quarterback when he's got to stand on the sidelines for nine minutes a game, letting up drives but they're just getting gash run after run. But There's a player that I have loved for two years now, because I still can't believe he didn't come out last year. And if you want to go back to the summer of 2020, when everyone was locked in their doors, there was a certain tweet from my Twitter account, I believe it was July 2020, where I said three of the best five wide receivers in college football played in the Big Ten. And of course, I was referring to Rashad Bateman, Rondell Moore and Chris Olave. And yeah, I thought Chris Olave was a top five wide receiver in last draft. I clearly think he's a top two wide receiver in this draft. And I kind of feel like he's been forgotten about. And it's, you know, it's starting to irk me a little bit. Jameson Williams, this flavor of the week guy, Drake London played like six good games, broke his ankle, but you know, he played basketball in college. So, you know, what an athlete, what an athlete. Yeah. That four, five, five 40 time. What an athlete. But Chris Olave has just been doing it for three years now. I mean, as a true freshman, he had two touchdowns in the game where Don Brown got crosser to death by Dwayne Haskins and Ryan Day. But Chris Olave wins in the short routes. He'll speed out you. No questions asked. He wins in the intermediate routes. He'll absolutely smoke you on the backside dig. And he wins down the field because that boy can fly. He runs four You'll see it at the combine. That boy can fly. Give me all this Jameson Williams. He's the fastest man alive. He's not even the fastest Alabama guy in the past three years. So pipe, pipe down. Chris Olave, first round wide receiver last year. First round wide receiver this year. And I would love it, love it, love it, as Dylan Price would say if the jets were to take him. So, uh, Joe, Oh, yeah, you know, it's la I saw, I saw your reactions. So no, let me hear it. I love Chris Olave. You know, that Meeks.
2: as far as like comparing him to the other guys, specifically my guy, Drake London, Drake London is a much better fit for Zach Wilson. And that's who I'm looking to target. Somebody who could go up and get those 50, 50 balls. Chris Olave is a, a pretty good contested catch player in his own right but he's definitely not Drake London and if the Jets are looking to make Zach Wilson better and that's what they need to be doing then I, there are other wide receivers who I would target prior to him he isn't my wide receiver too but I do agree that he's not getting as much love during this draft process as he should be when it comes to the Jets and who I'd like to target Chris Olave is you know maybe the fourth option on my board right now but I, I do respect that you love him you know he's your guy and uh I didn't appreciate you had to, you know, crap on my guy during the process, but I, I know I've done enough of that <laughs> to you on draft season. Listen, you know, Lavi's a good player, so I could stand by pretty much every, almost everything you said.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, just play like one more, more than one year on the basketball team before it's got to be brought up in every draft profile.
2: I've that's, never brought that's just my way, I have never brought that up. All about right, you. Dylan.
3: So, uh, so, I know you're not looking at me. I'm t- no, I'm not talking about you, but <laughs> maybe someone else who, uh, we we uh, associate with. Ah, Dylan. Now, I know you have Jahan Dotson in your school, who I think most Penn State fans don't like giving the Buckeyes credit. That's a division rival. And they got two wide receivers who are very good. So what are your thoughts on Chris Because I don't think we've heard them yet.
0: Well, so we got to get a little bit of a preview on them in the Slack chat this week where we kind of went to a little bit of a war on who would be the best fit for Zach Wilson. And I do want to say that I would, I know the love it, love it, love it thing. I would hate it, hate it, hate it if he was a New York Jet. Not because I don't want Chris Olave, because I swear, Meigs, if I have to listen to you talk about Chris Olave every week, like he's this like, and God of all gods, I don't know if I can survive a draft season year of that. With that said, though, I like Chris Olave. I want to preface that before i go in and it's not a penn state thing that i have him ranked five of my receivers right now with that said though i just don't think he's the best fit for the jets i if we're going to look at the guys ahead of him i mean garrett wilson we all agree is the clear cut number one and then behind him it gets a little more saucy on how you have it i have williams then it gets london and then i have Dotson, and we'll talk about the penn state bias another time maybe with that said though Jamison williams we talked about a lot on other receivers and other prospects about opening things up for Elijah Moore. Jamison Williams opens things up for Elijah Moore. He allows him to play that role that he kind of played at Ole Miss and do stuff out of the backfield and be a little more versatile. So I would go Jamison Williams over Olave in that respect. And then Drake London, like you hit the nail on the head, Joe. The former basketball player I'm going to trust to nab the 50-50 balls more than I'm going to trust Chris Olave. I apologize on that but I'm going to trust the former basketball player more. And we have a quarterback who's obsessed with throwing outside and doesn't necessarily love throwing over the middle of the field. So why not go Drake London? It makes too much sense. It makes too much sense not to go Jamison Williams. If he's a burner, I, I apologize. He's not the fastest Alabama receiver, but the fastest Alabama receiver just got in a shitload of trouble. So I'm going to lean towards going Jamison Williams or Drake London here rather than uh, going with Chris Olave. That's just a personal thing. But I like Olave. If we get Olave, I'm not going to be mad other than having to deal with you uh, loving it, loving it, loving it for the next uh, next 10 years.
3: Yeah, uh, Dylan, I was referring to Jalen Waddell uh, on top of Henry Ruggs. But, you know, I understand why I didn't want to go there. Um, yeah, I think Drake London hopefully can won't be in a walking boot when he makes those contested catches for the Jets. But, uh, James, uh, let me let me hear it because you've currently got a lot of stuff going on right now. So can you even focus on Chris Olave?
4: Yeah, I know. I mean, Dylan, I agree with you. I think, look, I mean, Drake was on the basketball team, averaging a full rebound per game. I mean, I know that's NFL material for bringing down 50-50 balls against all pro corners. Um No, I mean, look, I think Olave is really good. I don't – you guys know my thoughts on London, but I think people are going to draft Olave really high in the NFL just because they feel like he's such a proven commodity. I mean, he's been doing it at a high level for two years now, and he's been on the radar for about three. So, I mean, I have a lot of faith that Chris Olave can maybe have a sort of – maybe like Deontay Johnson, Terry McLaurin-esque like NFL trajectory, and that's a really good player, so –
3: yeah, no, that's who I see him as. I view him as a high-floor player. I think people who are going to go for the potential of the Traylon Burks, the Garrett Wilsons, even the Drake Londons, I will not fault anyone for doing that, but I just think that Chris Olave, sometimes having a proven commodity, it's very, very enjoyable. So now there's been a lot of takes on Jets' Twitter about, you know, double. we saw a mock draft this week where we took two defensive backs, which – You know, bury Joe Douglas under the jail if that happens. We have a lot of Jets Twitter talking about how they should just stack the offensive line and take Evan Neal and Tyler Linderbaum and really solidify that unit. But, ladies and gentlemen, we have the O-line professor in our midst who's going to, you know, class is in session. He's going to set everyone straight. So get ready for a nice little lecture. So, Joe, take the floor.
5: Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N Ads.com.
2: Yeah, means I was going to present today, Kenyon Green. I'll talk a little bit about him. Kenyon Green is this versatile. Offensive lineman from Texas A&M, he's really an extremely versatile player. I think that's kind of underselling him. He literally plays every position on the offensive line this year, except for center. And he's really unique in that way. It's hard to find a prospect who is as comfortable as he is playing multiple positions. But let me touch on Kenya at another time. I kind of want to pivot here for a moment and talk a little bit more about offensive line in general, because like you said, it's been a, a pretty hot topic in Jets Twitter and really everywhere. I've been working on a piece for the new draft season website that I think is relevant. Well, let me try to give you a brief synopsis or maybe not so brief. I think this is the moment where James usually sits back in his chair and crosses his arms because somebody's talking for too long. So when I went back to look at the teams that went to a Super Bowl or even a conference championship in the last few years or so, who didn't have an upper echelon quarterback or a Hall of Fame type of quarterback like Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes, and who had either a young quarterback like Zach Wilson or an average to slightly above average quarterback, their offenses all had two things in common, a very good offensive line and a dominant run game. Again, a very good offensive line and a dominant run game. Take the 49ers for instance, in 2019 with Jimmy G. They had the number two rushing team in the NFL were eighth in adjusted line yards and had three first round picks up front. Staley, McLinchy and Laken Tomlinson, who they got in a trade and one second rounder center Hello, center, Western Richburg. Richburg actually didn't play in the Super Bowl, and I do wonder if they might have won if he was available. Chris Jones dominated the interior late in that game, if you guys remember. If not, let's just say the combination of Ben Garland and Mike Person didn't do the 49ers any favors when it came to the final result. This year, San Fran isn't quite this 2019 49ers, but they still invested up front, whether through the draft, trade, or free agency, four, I repeat, four of their five starters at the start of the season were first round picks, including recently signed Alex Mack, a first round center who played with Kyle in Atlanta. So for those out there who think the 49ers aren't concerned with finding good interior players, I'm talking to you, James, that's just simply not true. And considering all the first round talent up front, it's clear that Shanahan likes a certain type of offensive lineman. But now let's keep going back, right? In the 2018 season, the Rams had the sixth overall ranked offensive line and the third overall rushing attack with their young quarterback, Jared Goff, when they went to the Super Bowl. Ironically enough, they lost interior offensive lineman Roger Saffold to Tennessee the following year, where he went to an AFC championship with the Titans, who did it with a similar formula, a dominant run game and a stud offensive line. The Rams, however, fell to nine and seven, had the 31st ranked offensive line. And while Jared Goff plays for Detroit right now, I think you guys know that. It seems like that was a pretty big loss to the interior. It actually kind of reminds me of when the Browns traded guard Kevin Zeitler to the Giants and their O-line went from second overall to the 23rd ranked line. If you remember, Baker regressed and everybody got fired. And well, they quickly went back to building that O-line with Judrick Wills, Jack Clonkin, and new coach Kevin Stefanski. Going to the playoffs for the first time in years, led by the number one ranked offensive line in the league and the third ranked rushing attack with Nick Chubb. Now, let's take a look at J.D., In 2017, when Joe Douglas was in Philadelphia, they had the number one ranked offensive line when they won the Super Bowl with Nick Foles. I repeat, with Nick Foles. And again, the third ranked rush attack. And in 2016, Atlanta had the sixth ranked offensive line with running back Devontae Freeman having the best year of his career when the Falcons met the Pats in the Super Bowl with Kyle Shanahan as their offensive coordinator. I remember that year very well. Devontae actually helped win me some money in fantasy football. Oh, and first round center Alex Mack was there for that too. I mean, are you guys noticing a trend here, James Meeks? What about our very own Jets who took rookie Mark Sanchez to -to back-to-back AFC championships with the best offensive line in the league and a dominant running game? I think we all know that the core of that offensive line were two first-rounders, Deep Rickshaw Ferguson and center Nick Mangold. So listen, in conclusion, I think the evidence out there on how to build a very good offense without an elite type of quarterback is pretty apparent. Again. Build that offensive line and establish the run. If you don't have an upper echelon quarterback, this is the way to do it. That's why I wanted to bring Kenyon Green into the mix. For those out there who believe the Jets can compete with an average offensive line with a young quarterback in place, there's really no evidence to support that theory. If you want to win games and get the offense going, you need to invest up front. Yes, listen, the defense is important too. I get that. And those teams mentioned all fielded good defense as well. But when it comes to the offense, this is the way to do it. If you're okay with having a mid-level or average to below average offensive line like the Jets have right now, you're destined to be an average team at the very best with a young and developing quarterback. The Jets simply don't have a stud quarterback to mitigate deficiencies up front. And that's why targeting players like Neal, Equanu, Linderbaum, and even Kenyon Green should still be a high priority for the Jets come draft day in round one especially if they don't address the need in free agency. Kenyon in particular is a very versatile prospect. As I mentioned, he could start out at right guard and eventually be the right tackle in the future. The possibilities are endless with this guy and he's definitely a Joe Douglas type of player. He's a great option in a trade down scenario and can probably be had in that later half of round one. And is at the top of my list when it comes to, I guess you could say the second tier offensive lineman in the draft. So again, if the Jets want to compete, and get to the promised land because that's the end goal, right? Having a top-notch offensive line needs to be part of the equation, and that includes finding interior players who are clearly being undervalued by some in the community. Listen, again, it would be great to develop players late, but Mike McKagnon neglected the offensive line for far too long, and JD is left to pick up the pieces. That's just the reality of the thing. So that's kind of my spiel on offensive line and like an article that I'm pretty much writing.
3: I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was a
2: little long, but uh, what do you guys think?
3: Uh, yeah, I'll go first, Joe. And I like Kenyon green. I have no bad things to say about Kenyon green. Kenyon green's a first round player that I have zero issues trading back for in the late teens, early twenties. If you want to trade back from that Seattle pick, which is probably going to end up around 13 would be my guess because they do get to play the lions and the bears in the remaining four games. So you think they're probably going to win two of those games, but, um, I think a question that I have and something I think you're leaving out is that an elite offensive line doesn't mean you have five elite players. It means that your weakest, your only, what makes a line elite is how good is your weakest player? And to me, I don't think you need four first round picks and a big free agent to create that offensive line. I think Joe Douglas's vision was to have Makai Becton be the elite left tackle that we hope he can be. And his health right now is a massive question mark, which I think leaves all of us concerned about what he can be in the future. I think he traded up for Elijah Vera Tucker because he views him as an elite guard. And I think he signed George Fan, he signed Morgan Moses to have actual depth there. And we'll see how they aren't right tackle. And that's a question mark that we don't know how they're going to be going forward. But GVR is the worst person on this offensive line. And GVR is the reason Mekhi Becton got hurt. And he's the reason why they are, I believe, a below-average offensive line. So I think you can build an elite offensive line with having a solid center. Whether that's McGovern, which I don't believe it is, but if you want, if Ryan Jensen comes available, which I think a lot of Jets fans are looking into, or if you decide to get take Zion Johnson from BC and pair him with another free agent guard, if you can just raise the floor of those two positions that have massive question marks right now. I think you can have a good offensive line that doesn't require using a first round pick on the offensive line. So okay. that is my spiel to you. But Meeks, what I'm saying is every
2: single one of these teams that went to the Super Bowl or a conference championship had like a top 10 offensive line, really like a top five offensive line. Like, yeah, you could replace GVR with a, a decent guard, but that's not a top five offensive line. All of this evidence suggested that when you have an average quarterback or a young quarterback, The only teams that are actually going to the promised land, the only teams that are having a chance to raise that Lombardi trophy are the ones who have upper echelon elite offensive lines. And honestly, yes, you could find those guys late. You know, the Eagles, I mean, they've been developing that offensive line for a decade, but the Jets aren't in that position. The Jets are in a position where they need to find plug and play starters who can take them to that place. All I know is that this offensive line right now is mediocre at best and just replacing GVR isn't going to do it. I think it's going to take replacing Connor McGovern. And I think it's going to take replacing Dr. Tardif or, you know, however you pronounce his last name. I think it's going to take multiple pieces. And I think you're kind of risking Zach Wilson's development. If you don't invest premium picks in that position, you need to go the safe route is what I'm saying. Otherwise, we we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, look, Zach is really struggling out there. And like, yes, it's, you know, can we blame the offensive line completely? No, you got to blame Zach Wilson as well. You know, I don't think that he's, you know, some people are saying he you know, is seeing the field but he's lacking confidence. I think that he's not seeing the field as well as he should. I don't think that he even saw it that well in college. You know, so bringing guys who are going to protect him, get that running game going and then work off of that because that's really how you're going to get to where we all want to get. We want to go to the playoffs. You know, we, we, want, to, we, want, to, we want to see playoff wins. We want to see a championship. And I, that's why I think, like I said, and after all this research that I did, when you look at even Mark Sanchez and you look at every, every single one of these teams, they all had bona fide stud offensive lines. Now, some of them, they addressed it in free agency. That Atlanta team had uh, Levitre, who was a second round pick. They had Alex Mack on the center, who was a first round pick. They had Matthews, who was a first round pick. And then they had, I think, uh, Chester was their other right guard. He was a second round pick. You know, then I said, San Francisco, three first round picks and a second round pick. Um, the Browns have two first round picks with Jack Conklin they signed. Then they have Batonio, Bet- who's a second round pick. And then they got to, to find some, some guys like Y. Teller. They got lucky. You know, but the Jets are in a position where they can get lucky. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah, oh great, let, let, me, let me draft somebody in round three and four, plug them in. And all of a sudden he becomes the, Wyatt, the next Y. Teller. Like, dude, that's like that doesn't happen every day. You have to, like, I, I feel like people are just really escaping people what it takes to win When you have a rookie like Zach Wilson, you need to build a gigantic wall in front of this kid. The only way he's gonna get his confidence back is if you protect him the way he was pretty much protected at BYU. And I know there are some instances where he actually is now, oh, look, he's got the BYU, they're protecting him like they do at BYU. That's not happening every day. The the offensive line is wildly inconsistent. They have their good moments, but they're not good. Mid-level offensive line isn't gonna do shit for Zach Wilson. I'm just telling you right now and bringing in a guard in like the third or fourth round who might be a plug and play. That's not going to do anything. Everybody's going to be talking about offensive line again next year. It's going to be another hot topic. They're going to be, this offensive line still sucks. And I don't want to see that. Let's invest the picks and shut everybody up. And if for some reason they have this dominant offensive line and Zach still isn't developing,
3: then we know what the real problem is. Let's be real. All right, James, do you have any thoughts to add?
2: Yeah.
4: Well, Joe, I mean, respectfully, I think you're conflating investing a ton of first-round picks into offensive line with having a good offensive line, period. I mean, there are pretty much every – I mean, look at the best interior linemen from this year. Creed Humphrey, second-round pick, late second-round pick. Trey Smith, sixth-round pick. Kendrick Green, what, third- or fourth-round pick? And there's more. I mean, it's not just them. Look at uh, Quinn Miner's. He was third round compensatory pick, and he's bulldozing people ten yards downfield on you know their gaps game runs. Why teller fifth round pick traded for a seventh round pick? Look at the best one of the best young interior offensive linemen of the last probably ten years. I mean, look at a uh, shoot. What's his name? The guy from this Elton Jenkins, bro, on the Packers. He was like the sixty
2: third pick in the
4: second round.
2: Yeah, I and- like, I like, I like Jenkins, James. You're talking about like. Three players in the draft for every three. This is this is every year. Player,
4: Jonah Jackson every, last year.
2: For dude. every player, for every Creed Humphrey, there's a player who doesn't work out who's drafted in the same range. I mean, it's just it's just a fact. Actually, it's probably five of them that don't. But that's the work draft. In the same range. That dude, and that occurs in the first round. And like, let me tell you something about Creed Humphrey. Creed Humphrey should have been a first round pick. The NFL is obsessed with anthropometrics sizes how big is your arm how big is your your torso how much do you weigh how long are your arms and creed humphrey had short arms he had like really he's got like t-rex arms alligator arms i told you that if he falls in the draft it's going to be because of his arm length because like i said the nfl is obsessed with that stuff well creed humphrey is just a really good example of how size doesn't matter it's about the motion in the ocean and let me tell you the motion is sweet with creed humphrey and like he should have been a first round draft pick and again that is about the NFL sleeping on potential prospects, especially centers. Like there are still executives out there like Mike Mcagnan, who think that centers are not valuable. Let me tell you, they are a dying breed and their teams are a dying breed. They're going to be out. They're going to be out sooner rather than later. Center is becoming well, yeah. circles a lot more of a popular position and one that's going to be drafted a lot higher in the upcoming years. Mark my words. When you have players like Linda Bauman available, when you have people like Creed Humphrey available. Yeah. I would have loved to have drafted Trey Smith in the sixth round. Every other team in the NFL skipped on Trey Smith. They got lucky that he turned out to be as good as he is. And frankly, he's playing as well as he is because he's a better scheme fit for Kansas City and a little bit more of a gap heavy team. He's playing next to Creed Humphrey, one of the smartest players in the entire NFL, maybe one of the, be- maybe potentially the best center in the NFL. So that's kind of elevated his game. The Jets don't have a center to elevate anybody's game. Connor McGovern is not elevating anybody's game. Look at ABT, ABT is even struggling in pass protection here and there because there's no communication there. They don't know what's going on. Like the processing in the, into, on the interior is subpar and that's having an effect on, on Elijah Vera as well. They need to invest smart players up front. That's why I'm so high on Tyrell in the bomb. They need another guard. And yes, I'm not conflating like good offensive lines with first round picks. I'm saying this team in this situation, unfortunately needs to invest high picks on offensive line because they are in dire straits because somebody like Mike McCagnin left them in a very bad position, drafted only three offensive linemen in the five drafts that he was here. When you look at Philadelphia in that same time span, drafted five offensive linemen. And that was a, a bona fide perennial stud offensive line. And that's the difference between those two organizations. That's why I love Joe Douglas. One of the first articles I ever wrote for Turn on the Jets was let's bring in a general manager who comes from a culture that knows how to build in the offensive trenches. That's why Joe Douglas was on top of my list. That's why I also like Terry Fontenot because the Saints are again, just one of the teams that understand that you need to protect your quarterback. When they lost Max Unger, they drafted that guy you mentioned, right? McCoy as their future center. They didn't wait for Wesley Johnson or Spencer Long like Mike McKagan did. And again, that's why we are in this position now talking about Tyler Linderbaum because we didn't have a general manager who knew what to do in those situations. And now we are in a situation where, yes, everybody's talking, we have to take a center top 10 because the O-line sucks. Zach Wilson is playing very badly. And the quickest way to rectify that situation is to beef up the O-line, get the running game going and take some pressure off the young kid. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying like you can build a good offensive line with
3: later round picks. Of course you can. I'm just saying the situation doesn't dictate that you do so bottom line. This, this actually parlays us right to our mailbag section. Yeah, I know. Can't transition. It's not a big deal. Ah, so our most devoted draft season listener who wakes up at 3 a.m. Just listen to this podcast. Our guy, Joe Horning left us with this question that ties into our O-line discussion. It says, With everyone debating how hard it is to change positions for a lineman going from college to the pros, and the primary issues of this offensive line have been located on the right side, why isn't Evan Neal the clear-cut option for the Jets with his history of playing right guard and right tackle? And Akamu has the crazy upside, obviously the Makai Beckton comparisons that we talked about, but he's primarily played on the left side. So I'll start off with just, I think, the most basic um, reason for this is that the Jacksonville Jaguars pick in front of the Jets as we speak. And if they lose, and if the Jets beat the Jacksonville Jaguars in two weeks, they will pick in front of the Jets pretty much confirmed. The Jacksonville Jaguars, if he's on the board, are going to take Evan Neal for Trevor Lawrence. I will bet money on that. I don't care who their GM is. I don't care who the head coach is. They're going to do that. And that's probably why Akamu who I think is a very good offensive lineman, I think he's going to be offensive tackle too for a lot of people and that's why you're not seeing the Evan Neal to the Jets as often, but I love Evan Neal, he's a freak freak of all freaks, go look at his box jump videos, I think Joe's completely on the money where if you want to take an offensive lineman who can be your long-term right tackle, but also if Mekhi Becton's health issues, because then can be your left tackle if you want that kind of versatility, Evan Neal is your guy and I would take him, if I had the choice, over Kanwu, 10 times out of 10 so, Joe, you've talked a lot, so I'm going to let Dylan and James go first if that's okay. Dylan, what are your thoughts on Evan Neal?
0: So, I like Evan Neal a lot. I think he adds the versatility level, like you just mentioned, Meeks, and we have kind of hit on to the offensive line that's desperately needed. And I also think, like, I, I really do think we're underselling Makai Beckton in his injury because he's spent a lot more time on the sidelines than he has on the field this so far in the Green and White, and that's really concerning to me. And I do think right now it's not it's kind of getting slowly becoming a more pressing issue for the New York Jets. But I mean, we're as good as our weakest link. You even just said it Meigs and I think it kind of ties back into the overall debate, but I think Mekhi Beckton's is one of the weakest links on the offensive line right now because he's not on the field. So in my case, I take Evan Neal. If he's there, I also kind of have agreed more with Joe in the same respect of I take an offensive lineman in the first round. If he's on my board as one of the best players and right now, Linderbaum, Aquanu, Neil they're all three guys I consider at the top of my board so I mean I think going the safe route is never a bad decision and I think all three of those offensive linemen are guys I'd consider safe prospects and guys who I could count on to be starters for this team. And I think if you look even back to the four linemen that came out in Becton's year, I mean, Becton was the riskiest play. Becton was the big guy. Becton was the non necessarily most durable guy. And he's been a question mark. And it goes into the entire draft model that I was worried about with the New York Jets with Ojabo is that how are we going to develop guys? How are we going to handle the riskier picks? And I think Evan Neal's a safe pick. Aquanu is a safe pick and Linderbaum are safe picks. So I would go with those guys. I would go with an Evan Neal if he's there.
3: James, do you agree that the uh, Neal's versatility makes him the clear offensive lineman? If they're going to target one in the top 10, That he should be him.
4: Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, I just don't subscribe to the idea that everything is going poorly in the development of our rookie quarterback. Thus we should make what would otherwise be bad drafting decisions just because we have all this pressure surrounding us. Like I just think that's a poor exploit. That's like poor reasoning for drafting a player Like, look, every center that's been drafted in the last 10 years in the first round, the GMs that drafted those players thought they would be great picks. I'm sure they rationalized those picks in very similar ways to the way Joe is doing it right now on the podcast. But that doesn't mean that just because we feel certain in our conviction on that player doesn't mean that it's going to turn out to be a good pick in terms of value down the road. And especially when you see interior offensive linemen getting the most money in free agency, are the ones who are drafted on day two, day three, outperforming their draft status. Why wouldn't we be the ones who want to try to extract that value where we can find players who are going to be productive, but we don't need to spend a high pick on them. Like, look, I believe in building through the trenches as much as anybody, but I don't see how you could look at the amount of successful linemen who have been developed from day two and day three at guard and that center and say that it's the most efficient way to spend our draft picks by drafting one in the top 15.
2: Yeah. Listen, I feel like you can't base, you know, picking Linderbaum and compare him to other centers. Like, oh, he has nothing to do with those other centers. Like, what does he have? Just because other centers didn't work out in the first round, you're like, oh, I'm not going to draft Tyler Linderbaum. I mean, what about Nick Mangold? Why don't we compare him to that particular center? I mean, that's one that worked out. What about the Pounceys? They all worked out. So I don't see how you're bringing up centers that potentially didn't, you know, come to fruition, you know, really have any relevance to drafting somebody like Tyler Lindebaum. And as far as like all those late day two, late day three, interior offensive linemen who work out, who are hitting free agency, if the Jets decide to attack one of those guys in free agency, and build the offensive line like that. I'd be fine with that too. I even mentioned it. I said if they don't address it in free agency, they definitely better address it in the draft. I'm okay with that. I don't see an issue with that. But as far as like bringing one in and hoping that he, you are the team that ends up developing him, I think that's, I think that's a little foolish. And honestly, we can. I blame Mike McHagan a little bit yeah. for what he did, but fact is that Joe Douglas does deserve some blame as well. You know, like he could have taken Jonah Jackson in the third round was, instead of like. Jabari Zuniga or Ashton Davis, like there were some good offensive linemen to develop in that first draft in 2020. He opted not to do it. And I honestly thought that he would do, but he didn't. He was trying to build a well-rounded team. And what he should have done is really look later in the draft for another potential player to develop. And again, that's also on Joe Douglas. Like he didn't do that. And now we are in this situation where we have to keep revamping the offensive line potentially with high priority picks. I mean, that's the way it is. As far as Joe's question goes, um, it's, as far as aquanu and neil like yeah neil is the more versatile player right now he has experience at other positions so obviously his transition would be a little easier i don't know that aquanu would really have that difficulty we don't know you know because he hasn't really done it but i do like the safety of a- a- neil in that regard over aquanu for sure because like i said he just has the experience some players have issues with it and some players don't i mean it's just the reality of things some people can Play other positions. You look like the guy I talked about today, Kenyon Green. I mean, he could literally play every position on the field. But I do remember this one thing that's something that stood out to me. But it could be just this particular offensive lineman. I forgot who it was, but they asked him. I don't know why I think it was Andre Dillard. But they asked him, you know, how do you feel about playing the other side of the line um, in the NFL if you can't play your original position? I think he came in as a left tackle. And he asked the reporter, he's like, what hand do you write with? And they're like, well, I'm a righty. And he said, well, try writing with your left hand because that's what it's like. Now, I don't think that it's that difficult, but I think it is potentially that difficult for some people. So I would go the safer route and target somebody like Neil who already has the experience. Let's just put it that way.
3: Yeah, I'll just end with this. If Joe Douglas misses on a first round offensive lineman, that won't get him fired. If he misses on Zach Wilson, He's probably gonna get fired, and I think we have to realize that that could greatly influence his draft plans, and just something that we all have to be prepared for. But this episode started out a little melancholy, a lot of excitement, got pretty contentious. You know, Joe and his four corners defense. You know, felt like his back goes against the wall. But that's what you get on draft season. You really never know what you're gonna get. You're gonna get a lot of emotions, and you're gonna get a lot of laughs. So. Great talking to my guys again. Make sure you're subscribed to the pod. Make sure you're subscribed to Badlands. Make sure you're watching Turn On The Jets Live. They just had an episode with Joe Caparoso. So make sure you're following all of that. The Jets, we're not a regular season team. We don't win games. It's all about the offseason. That's where we shine. We got like six offseason championship belts in the past decade. And this year, Turn On The Jets is going to help make it seven. So I love all my listeners. I love you guys. And I'll see you next week.